Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sunrise Wellness Walk podcast episode. Listen as Annie Morgan has some Q&A fun with our provost and vice provosts. Also, listen out for timestamps to know how long you've been walking or running. You may not get through this entire episode, but use the timestamps in the description to pick up where you left off at a later time. Enjoy. Hey, Sue, I'm so glad that I could spend a few minutes getting to know you a little bit better today. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks, Annie. Siri was answering you when you said that. Oh. <laughs> that happens when your name is Sue all the time. That's right. Put your phone away now. <laughs> so on a scale of one to 10, how happy are you? And tell us why. Yeah, um, so, you know, as in, in general, I'm a happy person just by nature. So I would say on an average day, I fluctuate between seven and nine. I, I would never characterize myself as the happiest person. <laughs> That's probably a bit arrogant anyway to think that. Um, but, you know, I, uh, I think that, you know, I'm, I'm happy in, um, in what I do. I have great colleagues. I have, you know, a great housing and family situation. And um, the kids are grown and doing well. And what's not to be happy about, um, even when there is this whole thing going on around us, um, because, you know, I'm also really just lucky um, to be where I am and, and have the situation that I do to be able to work online and, um, and be with my family and be safe. And mm -hmm. so just in general, um, I'd say I'm a happy person, even, even through all of this. That is great. Where do you find inspiration? Hmm. Well, this actually comes a little bit into play in my other answer too, because um, the one thing that really hasn't been taken away from us right now is nature. And I totally find inspiration in nature. Yeah. Um, I, I, I have a little cabin in the woods and when I say little, I mean little, um, it is very small. And um, at the start of the COVID-19, we were not visiting, but we changed our minds about that in the last couple months. And um, now that I'm getting back there, um, you know, I just, I love watching it. I mean, squirrels are like the coolest thing. Like <laughs> we, could, we could learn a lot about how to manage to solve problems by watching squirrels more often. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, the glory of it. I don't know. It's, I, I find it totally inspiring. Sounds a little reminiscent of Thoreau's Walden. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> Maybe I am where I belong for that reason. <laughs> Very good. So when we're able to finally travel again more regularly, if you could go anywhere, where would you go and why? Yeah, so another passion of mine is, um, is in history. And as it happens, I was supposed to be on the trip of a lifetime this summer, visiting the Greek islands and Rome and, um, and fulfilling that other part of something that I've always wanted to do. And um, so I just got my money back. 
from all of that. Air France and um, you know the other bookings that I had. I, I finally got it all back. Um, so there's a part of me that says I don't want to let this keep that from happening. Yeah. So um, you know, it was it was a, a trip to celebrate my um, my youngest daughter of four and her graduation from high school, and um, and so a good combination of history and nature. So visiting the Cook Islands and some of the beaches there, and you know the the nature um, in, in Italy as well, combined with the history and of course the food, because um, I do love some food too. Um, and, and I'm pretty adventurous around, around that. Um, and, and, and the wine was not a, a small part of what I was expecting from the experience either. Um, mm -hmm. some new wines and, um, even, you know, looking at some Greek wines, uh, even in advance of going there. So I'd like to rebook that trip and, uh, you know, do, do that when it's safe and, and uh, hopefully not have to always feel like it's the trip that never got to be. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I just took that trip in my mind with you. <laughs> Listening. Uh, yeah, that's good. So we know that you are a retired Coast Guard officer. Will you tell us a little bit about what life was like? Um, what about that had the biggest impact on you? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question um, when people ask that. I think there's like big answers, like, you know, um, I feel like in the Coast Guard, especially something that is a part of your everyday life from the very outset is you're going to solve problems and lead people. And so mm -hmm. those are skills that work wherever you are. If, if you take the kind of approach to, to, to problem solving and leadership that I think is espoused in the Coast Guard pretty consistently. Uh, you know, I think people have this impression that military is very top down and certainly there are aspects of the military that's very top down, but effective leadership is effective leadership no matter. Mm -hmm. And um, there, there often comes a time in any leadership situation where you have to make a decision and it, it's gonna feel like a top down or an order, but those are always supported by creating great relationships, by hearing from experts, by valuing the voices at the table who bring different perspectives, and, and having the courage to make decisions when they're needed. And so there's a big answer like that. Um, there are little answers too, though, like uh, nature. Um, I, I love the water. I mean, that is like such a mm -hmm. part of who I am. And I just feel better when I'm near the water. So when I think about being on a ship in the Coast Guard, there are lots of things I could think about, but the one I think about most is I was often that person on deck between the hours of midnight and four when nobody else was, just taking it all in. There's nothing like the stars out there in the middle of the ocean when nobody else is around and the ship is dark. And mm -hmm. yeah. you and the stars and the moon. And I love celestial navigation when I had to learn that. It was like this whole like, connection with the world that most people don't get to have so there's there's those little things and then there's the little things like i can change clothes faster than anybody else on the planet um because we practice that you know you have uh -huh. to be in the right uniform and in the right clothes for the right thing and so you got to be able to do that so i can change clothes really really fast 
I can also sleep anywhere, anytime, and for any period of time. So if I have 10 minutes and I'm tired, I can fall asleep and wake up in 10 minutes without mm -hmm. an alarm. Like sleep is, is a precious thing. And yeah. so you learn and you teach yourself how to do it. Who knew can apps were a skill? Oh yeah, totally. Like <laughs> I remember one of my uh, great little tricks at the Coast Guard Academy as you're acclimating to this new environment was they make you stay awake all day long from Reveille at 6 a.m. until taps at 10, you have to stay awake. Unless, of course, you can find a place to sleep. <laughs> and I could sleep on one of those skinny little benches in the women's locker room without having to move <laughs> and sleep and take my nap in the women's locker room on the, that skinny little bench. And so I also don't move when I sleep. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> You talk to military people, I bet you they all have some little thing like that, like a, a way yeah. to eat or a way to, you know, just basic human needs. You mm -hmm. change your way of thinking about them because they're not always available to you. Mm -hmm. Things people don't think about. Right. And so you think about them do. <laughs> in those environments. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's kind of one of those things that you don't even realize um, you're doing it um, because it's just part of the culture and then then you realize the rest of the world doesn't think like that. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> You've made it to 10 minutes. Way to go. Keep it up. So do you have a favorite teacher? Absolutely. I have two of them, actually. <clears throat> One of them was a high school teacher. <clears throat> uh, who was actually my history teacher. And, and I think, Annie, you know, I'm an engineer. But I also have this really great love of reading. And mm -hmm. I, I consider myself a Renaissance person who just loves, I just love learning, whatever it is. And uh, Mrs. Betts, my uh, US history and world history teacher in high school, just, I don't know, made that all come to life for me. And, and I'll say my parents did the same. They were great teachers. We visited historical sites. I, I mentioned in my, um, in my general session address last time that, you know, I, I came from a family that didn't have a lot and um, national historic sites are free. Mm -hmm. So, um, or, or very low cost, depending. That's what we did on our vacations. I went to Gettysburg more often than anybody could shake a stick at. And so, I learned by going to places like that and Mrs. Betts just helped me create the, um, the connections between those things in ways that good teachers do, you know, like what was happening here and what was happening in China and Europe and how it all created the systems that persist today even. Mm -hmm. so he was great. Um, and so the hands-on part of that is another one. My college professor that I really love was Dr. Dunn. He taught my wastewater class. <laughs> yes, go figure. And um, so civil engineers, we have to learn about wastewater of all kinds of waste, uh -huh. whether it's stormwater or sewage. And um, he just had such a great sense of humor about it. We did go visit sites. So, you know, we visited the sewage treatment plant and things like that. But really what drew me to him to start with was the, the sign over his door from the minute I met him, which said, 
It might be shit to you, but it's bread and butter to us. <laughs> <laughs> they have a sense of humor about he such things. He had a things. great sense of humor, and it came out in that sign and every day in class. And so, you know, when it's fun like that and mm -hmm. connected to the world, um, how could you not want to learn? Yeah, yeah. And it sounds like he was authentic in his style, and he was who he was. Absolutely. Um, mm -hmm. And... And I think, uh, you know, you know, that's, that's me too. Yes. Yep. That's great. So I'm wondering what advice you have for young people today. Um, if they're heading into experiences with higher education as students or as a profession for the future, what advice for young people today around higher education experience? Well, so one thing I've seen happen, Annie, in, um, in education over the last 20 years is that there's this, a couple forces pushing toward job outcomes and salaries, of course, uh, getting increased focus and hyper-specialization mm -hmm. at very early ages, like starting an engineering academy for seventh graders and um you know asking my daughter had to apply to a program in her own school to be able to take a class when she was 12 like and write an essay and while i appreciate exploring different options etc i just didn't think it was the kind of broad view that young people should get so they can test the waters and I mean, mm -hmm. yes, there are people who come out of the womb and they know I'm going to be a doctor, you know, like, and, and it's their life's passion, but the vast majority of people don't really know. And they know what they've been exposed to even. And so they think they know. Yeah. And so I just say, explore, like, don't get, I thought I was going to be a lawyer. I'm not, you know, like here, here I am. Interesting. Yeah. And had I gone to West Point? I might be a lawyer today. It was one of the choices on my list. I was not going to be an engineer if I went there. They didn't have law at the Coast Guard Academy. So I became an engineer and I'm ha I was happy. I'm happy mm -hmm. in teaching. I mean, like, so there's, there's not one path to happiness and one thing that's going to do it for you necessarily. So I just say, don't, don't feel like it's always about the money. The money certainly is important. Um, and, and give yourself the opportunity to see things working together. Um, you know, I think we're going to see soon some more interdisciplinary focuses mm -hmm. for us because the world is interdisciplinary. One thing doesn't happen without influencing something else. One system influences another all the time. And so, um, I would just say, um, don't, don't feel like you have to make a decision too soon and don't feel like you're locked into it. Leave yourself open. I've, I've totally changed what I've done twice in, in my life and been really happy in doing it. Yeah. Well, I said for young people, but I might just, you know, listen to that advice myself. <laughs> Love it. And who knows? I might too. I... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good. So let's talk about your work a little bit. Would you share what's going well in your role? Um, what big wins have you seen recently? Yeah, well, um, so what's going well? I think relationships, you know, is something that when I, when I came here 
almost six years ago now, um, I, I knew was important. I had never really come into an organization as a leader. I had always worked my way through an organization to become a leader. So I worked my, my way through the Coast Guard, um, retiring there as a captain. I worked my way from assistant men's basketball coach and adjunct faculty at the college where I worked before to being the vice president of academic affairs. Mm -hmm. You know, a bunch of jobs in between. So I had this sort of really from the ground up sort of knowledge about both of those institutions. And I knew coming into this job, I wasn't going to have that. So I had to find it through relationships and asking a lot of questions, relentlessly asking questions, inviting myself to meetings that I wasn't invited to. Um, I'm sure people listening to this are going to recognize that behavior. Um, and, um, and just learning and soaking in from all the great experts I could. And so coming into this role, you know, this, the big win to me has been about relationships and building bridges where, um, you know, maybe there hadn't been a bridge before and continuing to do that. And I, I just have to say that I don't believe we would have been able to respond to our challenges around residencies and co you know, field experience to, sh to do the things that we did and keep students moving through their programs if those relationships were not solid. And, and even at the outset, some of them weren't solid, but but they became more solid because of the approaches that we took. So I think the relationships there um, are, are, are the biggest win. And, and if, we, if we go back to that foundation all the time, I, I think we'll keep winning. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's great. So as a reader and lifelong learner, we'd like to know, where are you getting your information these days what are you reading? Are you following Twitter? What would you advise us to do in terms of getting information? So I will say that I visit Twitter only when I think it's absolutely necessary. Um, and more as uh, a way to uh, find an alternative point of view, probably mm. is how I would put it. I, mm -hmm. I, I do really like to read and I like to read deeply. I, I don't know that the expansion to 280 characters is allowing that to happen for me. Um, yeah. 140 was, was bad, uh, was, was just non-negotiable really for me. And I did try, I will say that. I just, I couldn't do it. Um, so I don't use Twitter. Um, I do read the New York Times and the Washington Post every single morning. Um, as much cover to cover as I possibly can. And I read um, the articles on Fox News. I'm not a big video watcher for sources of information. So I, even mm -hmm. when I see a video, if it doesn't come with text, I, I don't do it. Typically, I read. Um, so I, I watch, I, I read the Fox News, um, you know, probably three or four times a week um, to go along with that. And then uh, my other sources of information really primarily come from LinkedIn. I have great colleagues and great relationships, and I really like to see what they have to say about the world. And, um, and so keeping up with people in the Coast Guard, keeping up with people from my previous jobs and people who used to work with us here in Laureate and seeing what they're doing, um, I think those are 
great sources, the Chronicle, you know, Inside Higher Ed, you know, I, when I can, I'm looking at those two and, and trying to share. Um, yeah, so yeah, I like to read those things and close out with some kind of book, mm -hmm. uh, you know, often which comes from that experience. So I, I do the Kindle Unlimited sort of thing too. And so as I'm reading those sources, I'm often just typing something into my Kindle to say, yep, read that later. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So What's downloaded on your Kindle now? Oh yeah. Well, I, I have had reason to reread what got you here won't get you there. I've been reading that lately. Uh, I also read with my third daughter recently a shared read of White Fragility. Mm -hmm. And that was a great experience to do that with my daughter, um, who is 22, and yeah. a nice age to share that kind of experience. We used to do in-person lunches around books and that sort of thing. Yeah. I, with four daughters, it's hard to find ways to connect with each of them individually. And so often we would do that over books mm. and have that kind of thing. Um, mm -hmm. So we did that virtually. Um, those are those are at the top of, of my list these days. Great recommendations. <laughs> cool. All right. I better let you go to your next meeting. All right, cool, thanks. Thank you so much, Sue. You're just past the 20 minute mark. Great job. As you listen to the next interview, think about how you too might answer some of these questions. Savitra, thank you so much for spending some time with us today and answering some questions so we can get to know you even better. Thank you for having me. I'm excited about this. Good. All right. So the first thing we want to know is how happy would you say you were on a scale of one to 10? And tell us why. Um, it's really interesting that at this particular time where the world seems to be on fire and everything is so tumultuous that I would say this, but I think I'm probably somewhere between an eight and a nine most days. Um, I am safe and I am, and the people I love are safe. And um, I have had family members who've been ill and they've recovered from COVID-19 and I work every day and that's been uninterrupted. Um, there have been some wonderful benefits about slowing down. Mm. Um, there have been some wonderful benefits to having an opportunity to evaluate what makes what's most important to you mm -hmm. and looking at those things and saying, oh yeah, you know, those things are intact for me. And there's tremendous value in being able to give back and help other people. And so at the beginning of this time of quarantining and isolating and um, socially distancing, my daughter and I spent a substantial amount of time looking for ways we could give back to other people. And um, I have to say that contributed greatly to us feeling really good about not about you know um sharing the way that we've been blessed and i think that it may have exhausted us to the point that we didn't have a chance to be 
anxious about her not being in school and us being away from many of the things we know. The other thing that makes me happy is that we have access to social media and we have access to so much technology that I have been even more intentional about connecting with people, staying up on what people have going on. Um, my parents and I both have Facebook portals in our home now, so we're able to see each other um, in a way that we didn't before because we're separated by the mouths. I do regular Zoom meetings with family members. So I'm pretty happy. Um, you know, there have been points where I've been sad. Um, and I would have to say that the death of George Floyd probably marked a tremendously emotional time for me where I had to figure out um, what my role was in Instead, you know, I, I kind of adopted this theme for myself of beyond hopes and prayers of just, you know, it, it was kind of, kind of, it was kind of how I felt about all of the school shootings for the last decade or more, um, you know, just being exhausted with mm -hmm. praying for people or saying those people are in my prayers and really just thinking about what is my role in this? Um, and, but first of all, I had to acknowledge just how completely overwhelmed I am by living in a world of um, daily traumatization. Mm -hmm. um, and I have in certain pockets of my life spoken about that and talked to people who were intimately connected with me about the fact that that's how I live every day. But the experience, um, the most recent civil unrest has given me more opportunity to talk with other people about it. And it's interesting, Annie, I had to make some decisions about how much I was willing to talk mm -hmm. with people because mm -hmm. I saw people who seemed to be freshly wounded when my wounds have, all, have existed my entire life, you know? And so... Um, but, you know, even in that, there is significant happiness in being able to bear witness to other people's realization that this is your experience. Because for a long time, I have, um, not a long time, but, but there are times when I talk to people and I make the assumption that they understand what my daily world is like. Mm -hmm. um, and they say things to dismiss what I'm saying. Like, you know, I will, I have had the experience once, Annie, if you don't mind me veering off from your question. Um, Not a bit. <laughs> I had the experience of trying to explain to a supervisor once that there was a possibility he could get negative feedback about how I presented in a meeting um, because I was taking a lot of chances on being more assertive than I genuinely am for fear of being labeled by that stereotype of being an angry black woman. And I shared with the supervisor that, you know, this may be different for a lot of the people in this, who were in this meeting because many of them have never had the experience of an African-American woman um, asserting herself 
in this way, and you know, especially someone in, in my position of vice provost. Um, and so I want you to be prepared for that. And I want you to understand that that may be a mediator, the fact that I'm an African-American woman who said those things. And the supervisor responded, you know, we know you're an African-American woman, you know? Um, and there was definitely, I, I didn't feel unsupported, but I felt like there wasn't the recognition and the understanding that every, in every setting, I'm always trying to evaluate how people are perceiving me because I am an African-American woman. So Annie, you know, when I talk about my happiness being between an eight and a nine, I have to tell you, you know, my granddaddy and my grandma always taught me, and my father always said that the devil you know is a lot better than the devil you don't know. And I think having an awareness of um, systemic racism in a way that people may not have before being confronted by it and having people have to make a decision about whether or not I'm going to be complicit, complicit or whether or not I'm going to activate myself to try to undo um, these negative aspects of systems, I, I think it's a good thing. And, and, you know, when I think about, I guess I would say I may be interpreting happiness with, I may be using the term happiness to be synonymous with joy, but I do have joy about this conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Savitra, you describe a, a depth of happiness that comes from giving and being in community and in connection with people you love that I think I heard from you creates space for sadness. Yes, definitely, definitely, definitely. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Time check. You've been at it for 30 minutes. Hope you're enjoying the Q&A. Okay, so um, on another note uh, in your personal life, I, I wonder if you have your own favorite teacher and what made a favorite teacher stand out for you? So Annie, I have, you know, for years I have been in settings where people have asked, who was your favorite teacher? Who was your mm -hmm. favorite teacher? And I would get stumped by that for the longest time because um, my favorite teachers were in my family. Um, first, I come from a family of a lot of educators. I mean, mm -hmm. a huge number of educators. At this point, I think we are probably like maybe in the third or fourth generation mm -hmm. of educators, but my, um, my, maternal grandparents were not very well educated and I spent a lot of time with them and my first teacher was my grandmother um, and she taught me to read before I was three years old yeah. and yeah. when I went to kindergarten um, the teachers were frustrated because she taught me <laughs> sight words right and oh, yeah. that's how she taught me to read and I didn't know phonics and so they would say, oh, we're going to have to reteach her because, you know, she's learned to read the wrong way. But my grandmother also taught me 
responsibility. She taught me how to braid hair on my doll. She taught me generosity. She taught me to be creative. My grandmother had picture frames in her living room that were made from pieces of a pine cone. I had no idea that this was the result of somebody who didn't have making the most out of what she had. Mm. Um, but it has been phenomenal. There are so many things that I do for myself that I would never imagine paying anybody for. And people kind of look at me like, really, you do that? Like, don't you have the resources to pay someone? Well, I don't choose to use my resources like that because there's so much joy in mm -hmm. doing for myself and constantly collecting skills and testing what I know and doing things with my hands and growing things with my hands. But she was my best and favorite teacher. Um, both my parents were wonderful teachers to me in the home. My dad is probably was probably most influential on me because my father, um, having two girls, just decided, I don't know where he got this from. My dad was probably a womanist long before people thought about the term you know, before Alice Walker wrote her book. Mm -hmm. um, my dad was the kind of person who called me out to the house, come on, I'm fixing the brakes. I need you to hold the brakes, you know, um, yeah. hold the soldering iron. When, when I was um, eight years old, my dad got a blueprint for a boat and my sister and I went out in the yard every night being eaten by mosquitoes and coming back in the house itching from fiberglass because my we were his helpers in mm -hmm. building the boat. And the thing is, Annie, at that point, we had no concept that that was anything strange. We didn't mm -hmm. know it was strange until other family members started laughing and gawking, you know, laughing about what he had done with his girls that summer. But my father taught us, he exposed us to everything he was learning. My father overhauled the engine to a foreign car by hooking up a pulley um, on my basketball goal outside and studying the schematic diagrams in the bathroom. <laughs> that may feel like too much, but this, is, this was the example of a teacher I had. And the reason I share this is because I had other great teachers too. I want to just mention Oliver Caesar Sims who taught me Dixon Intelligence is not having all the answers, but knowing where to go to find the answers. Beautiful. And Herbert Exum, who I called my stealth professor, who taught me in the sneakiest of ways. Um, and I learned so much from him. He was one of the most phenomenal um, teachers I've ever had in a formal setting, both he and Oliver Caesar Sims. And I think it's notable, a couple of things are notable about what I said that I wouldn't want anybody to lose. First is the most significant learning I had happened as a child, as a child. And the reason this is important for us at Walden is because we are educators and what a child gets in the formative years of development launches that child for a lifetime. I was taught to appreciate learning. I was put in an environment where someone was teaching me from the day I was born. So learning, being in a setting where people are teaching me and I'm supposed to be learning and applying, because that's what my grandma taught, right? She taught, she taught, and there was immediate application to what I was learning. 
And being in that environment makes me feel safe when I'm in a learning environment. But so many children have not had that mm-hmm. opportunity. But there's so much to be said about us um, educating people who can give their children the best education, their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren um, the best opportunities to be learners in this world. Um, the other thing that I want to share is the, um, the importance of what I just told you, the fact that three of my best teachers were African-American men. My father, Oliver Caesar Sims, and Herbert Exum. And one of the things that we are struggling with in our society right now is that so many African-American men are not going into the field of education. And for me, as a woman, it meant a lot. One, for me to see African-American men who I was looking up to as teachers, right? That was a very, very important thing. But the other thing is that the fact that I had such gentle encouraging men teaching me, they made me as a woman always feel safe in a space where I'm sharing my ideas with men. Mm -hmm. And as a woman of this generation, that's been hugely important because there are still spaces I'm navigating with. There are not a lot of men, you know? So that's more than you asked me, of course. (laughs) Of course, that is a perfect answer. (laughs) Thank you. So do you have a favorite book or artist or genre that you would tell us about? So there was a point in my life, there still is a point in my life um, where I consider myself an artist, primarily a writer myself. So I have um, always been partial to the written word. Um, And my favorite author, woman named Jay California Cooper. Um, I think one of the first, two of the first African-American women I ever read were um, Maya Angelou and Gloria Naylor. But when I came across Jay California Cooper's work, I felt like I was reading someone who was speaking to my heart and to my soul with her words. Um, She writes a lot about the African-American experience, but African-American relationships love relationships of all kinds, familial relationships, um, erotic relationships, um, you know, uh, romantic relationships. But she, she speaks to the very human experience of looking for love, being disappointed by love, um, working hard to acquire it, you know, and And it is so interesting to see someone write about a human experience that you don't get a chance to get a glimpse of a lot. Love between people who don't have a lot. Love between people who are struggling. Love between people who are separated because of their own doing or because of the systems and the world they live in. Mm -hmm. And so she, she died a few years ago, but her work, was just absolutely brilliant and relatable. I recommend her to anyone, but I'm also a music enthusiast. I love most kinds of music. I love gospel, I love jazz, I love R&B. 
Um, I love bluegrass. I love country. I love most kinds of music. Uh, I love to work out to great pop songs and that kind of thing. My favorite music would probably be jazz standards and big band um, music, but um, yeah, I, I love music. <laughs> awesome. Love that. 40 minutes. Wow. Keep it up. As you do, think about a colleague you might host a virtual coffee break through Teams with and ask questions like these to get to know each other more deeply. Do you have a motto or words that you live by? Well, I did, Annie. <laughs> I had when when I was younger, I used to be glib and say, when um, when you find yourself at the end of your rope, tie a knot and eat a cookie. But <laughs> on a serious on a serious note, years ago, probably around 1995, I heard the athlete Tim Duncan say something when he was interviewed. He said that his late mother taught him good, better, best. Never let it rest until your good is better and your better is your best. And his mm -hmm. mother, I don't think, is credited as the author of that. I think it came somewhere else. But for the longest time, that's how I operated. Good, better, best, you know. And in some ways may have even projected an air of superiority <laughs> because, you know, um, this is who I was, always striving to be better, Oh, never resting on any one accomplishment or my laurels. And this was how I was teaching my daughter. And she was probably three when mm -hmm. she was, able, you know, first learned to recite that. But as she reached her teenage years, she started teaching me about the damage you can do to a person by um, always forcing them to push for more. And I, I will tell you, and as an African-American parent, it's really hard to be in a space where you're not constantly pushing your child to mm -hmm. be as good as they can be because you're so afraid that if you let up um, in the world that exists, um, that it may mean that your child is never able to get the opportunities you mm -hmm. think they should have or you want them to have access to. And then we get into this term about whether or not, you know, who deserves what not. As a spiritual person, I don't focus as much on what people deserve, but really try to acknowledge opportunity as something that I want my have, whether she deserves it or not. I want her to have it, you know, and I want her to work to be in a space where she has options. But, you know, she is able to articulate to me that, you know, she said to me one day, she's like, Mom, there are a lot of things I can do well, but I don't want to do them all. I'd like to be able to choose the things I want to do. Mm -hmm. And that, first of all, was a huge lesson for me to have her say that. But the other thing about her saying that was that she made me really think that about the pressure I put on her, other people, and myself to always be best and or to be keep striving for more and strive harder mm -hmm. and the best thing about COVID is having the opportunity to try your hand at things that you haven't necessarily tried before and there's so much beauty and learning a little bit about a lot of things and trying and celebrating imperfection and I yeah. think that's 
thing that I've probably learned since March is that I've been celebrating perfection and celebrating imperfection. And so Annie, I think I may have evolved to <laughs> the idea that perfection is the enemy of greatness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, crumbling that motto up and throwing it away for yeah. <laughs> to yeah. some extent, yeah. All right, uh, let's talk a little bit about our work life. And um, I'd love to talk about your team. Would you um, tell me what you perceive to be the morale of the team around you? Yeah, well, first of all, I have a fabulous team of people who have worked so hard. I've been absolutely amazed at how hard they worked to find solutions for our, um, for our students when we faced the COVID crisis. Absolutely amazed at how devoted and how committed they were to trying to take care of people. When we got to the point of so much civil unrest. Um, and so, you know, I am in awe and admiration of my team. Um, what I try to do, you ask me about their morale, and I think that they, their morale must be in a pretty good place because they keep working hard. They keep working in a way that suggests hopefulness, mm-hmm. that they can positively impact students, that they can make our university stronger, um, and that they have ideas of merit that they want to present. And so to me, that means that that's an indicator of a group of people having high morale, as long as they are contributing in the way that my team contributes. But I don't take it for granted. Mm -hmm. My my responsibility is to remove as many obstacles as I can, to listen to them, and to express my gratitude to them. It's really hard to do all three things on a regular basis. So I think, you know, I think that they're definitely, I think morale can ebb and flow. And I think that what we're all experiencing right now of having our entire lives disrupted means that we have to care for each other a little bit more. We do not need to act in any space like it's business as usual. Acknowledge that some people's systems have been completely undermined by both COVID and the civil unrest. We need to acknowledge that people are uncertain and afraid, and many of them who may have had great attitudes for the first 16 weeks of being (laughs) isolated are starting to get pretty, pretty darn aggravated Mm. and exhausted right now. And so we have to support them. And when I say we we can't express businesses, we can't operate with business as usual. I've been on a couple of meetings where I've gotten ready to hang up for people. I said, okay, I love you. And then I go, (laughs) and I'm like, you know what? That may feel weird, but in case you haven't heard that from somebody today, I I definitely feel love for you. So what's wrong? What's inappropriate Mm -hmm. about me saying that? Because we're not in normal times. Yeah. Well, I love you, Savitra. I love you too, Annie. (laughs) You're just under 50 minutes. As you wrap up your walk or run, be sure to continue listening on for our final two interviews. 
Thank you, Marilyn, for spending some time and talking with me today. I'm excited to dive in and get to know you better. You bet, Annie. Thank you for having me. So I'm going to start with a softball question. <laughs> I want to know on a scale of 1 to 10, how happy are you? And tell me why. Oh, gosh. I, you know, I usually run at about an 8. I'm a pretty um, happy person, and I think part of it's because I've learned to um, accept, you know, kind of use radical acceptance of how things are, um, focus on my circle of influence, what I can change and what I can't, and just don't give up. Every day is a new day to give it another shot. So um, I wouldn't say happy, like joyful all the time, but happy, like content most of the time. Mm -hmm. I get that. Yeah. When you were a kid, do you remember what you wanted to become? What was your dream? And, and, and how did that work out for you? <laughs> it's a funny thing. Um, I wanted to be a psychologist. So it worked out really well, actually. And um, the reason I know I wanted to be a psychologist is because I found um, a treatment plan that I wrote for my brother when I was about 10. <laughs> And he was about two and apparently had an issue with biting. And so I had steps to um, help Ben reduce his biting behavior. And then I wrote little progress notes about how he was doing. And I still have that actually. It's pretty funny. I like to show it's pretty it to adorable. Him. Yeah, it's pretty cute. And so, um, you know, I took psychology in high school and then I went to a um, liberal arts undergrad institution and about year two, I was really enjoying myself, taking all kinds of fun things like, you know, I learned to make beer and honors chemistry and, you know, world religion. And, you know, my dad gave me a call and he said, um, how about a major? It's <laughs> like, oh, no, I, I really like just Is it time for that? <laughs> yeah. He said, well, <laughs> this is not the least expensive thing you've done. So um, how about a major? And I said, okay, how about psychology? And he's like, well, what will you do with that? And I said, well, if I get a PhD, will you leave me alone? <laughs> and he said, sure, you do that and I'll leave you alone. And so um, I finished my doctorate at the University of Kansas in Lawrence. I think everybody knows that at this point um, at 26. <laughs> and he has not left me alone. <laughs> so, so it just kind of fell through that way. Now, um, interestingly, what I learned really about myself is I wanted to make systems better for people. So whether it was a family system or a homeless service provider system or a correctional system um, or an educational system, it, it all felt good to me. So while the training was in psychology, it actually got broader than that. Over yeah. Time. Yeah. That's awesome. I'm sure your dad is proud of you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, so outside of work, what has been the biggest challenge that you have faced? Um, this year, I think, has been incredibly challenging for me as well as, as probably most of us listening to this this morning and, and taking our wellness walk. I think right now, personally, the biggest challenge is um, family, you know, managing the expectations of a 17-year-old um, who's looking at colleges virtually and trying to figure out you know, what she, you know, she's a rising senior, so she still has time, but it looks very different than we thought it would look. And then our preparation 
kind of led us to. So that's been a little stressful. And she's starting to say things like, well, maybe I don't want to go so far because how will I get home if I need to? Mm -hmm. And so you're kind of watching that shift in the confidence of, see ya, going to California, <laughs> to, hmm, how will this work in this environment? And then, you know, just um, one thing that Colleen and I, my wife and I really love to do is travel. And she has um, parents and, and family in Ireland and we're not able to see them and we've missed, you know, milestones and, and I think and just traveling in general. Um, had to cancel some trips and, and certainly travel to see colleagues and, and be at national faculty meeting. I'm feeling that really yeah. intensely right now. So I think just the, the travel, the worry about the world, the worry about people affected personally, and certainly um, the pandemic of, of racial violence. I think all of that kind of loading is, is really stressful right now, personally and professionally, but specifically personally. Yeah. So when you think about dealing with that stress, I wonder, do you have any rituals, a morning ritual, things, a nightly ritual, things that you do to... Um, for your own health and well-being. Sure. Um, you know, we've bought bikes and, you know, learning to kind of redesign lives. Of course, in Texas, it's about 110 degrees most of the time. So I'm not sure how well this is going to go until the fall. But um, looking at, at things differently, like breaks, taking micro breaks, uh, gardening, taking bike rides, uh, looking at kayaks and the ability to get onto water and just get out of the, the home space. Although, you know, I think a lot of us are improving our home space just because we're spending so much time in it. Mm -hmm. It's also nice to step out uh, away from it. So I'm pretty good at stepping away from work. And I think that's important. I think you're good at it too. I think that it's really important. So in the mornings, I typically um, get up and I have coffee with whipped cream every morning because that feels important. What a treat. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and then um, we have kind of a family morning meeting, which sometimes is later than others, depending on the team, and just kind of figure out what everybody needs to accomplish that day. Um, and you know, with three of us online in the house, mm -hmm. it's been particularly challenging, but we do that. And then um, in the evenings, it's uh, sit outside, um, play with the dogs. We have two blue healers and they need a lot of activity to so play with the dogs. Um, maybe my parents have a pool, hit the pool or just, you know, family time and kind of cut everything out. Um, one thing I don't cut out very well are screens cause they're, I like to stream and binge TV shows. So we do that kind of at night before we go to sleep and it helps me separate from reality just kind of mm -hmm. watch a story or watch something someone's created for entertainment value. Yeah. 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 So do you have a favorite teacher from your past or what mm -hmm. made a favorite teacher stand out to you? Oh yeah. My sixth grade teacher was Mrs. Carlson. It's funny. I ran in her, ran into her in line to vote about three years ago when I, um, I had returned to Dallas, maybe, 14 years ago and she's still around. So it was fun to run into her and she really um, helped me develop confidence at that really critical age. And she would, um, she, with everybody, she would um, make sure she said something positive about you and she wrote notes. You know, not everybody got one every week, but everybody got one. 
mm-hmm. about every month, about the things she thought you were doing well, there she liked about you, and I still have some of them. And I think that she really um, was almost the first sort of positive uh, psychology person in my life who really mm-hmm. saw the value of seeing things right before mm-hmm. starting to work on what was wrong. Yeah. And so I, I'm always grateful to her for that. Yeah, that's nice. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have a motto or words that you live by? <laughs> well, I had a, a, my grandmother passed away last year at 103 and she had several. Um, and one was want what you have and you'll have what you want. And I, that stumped me as a kid. I spent a lot of time thinking about that and trying to think that's not right, you know, because I wanted other <laughs> stuff. And, but, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't quite get away from that one. And another one was from sixth grade. It was for every freedom, there's a responsibility. That one, that one really puzzled me too, because I could not, I was like, okay, I'm going to be able to think of a freedom for which I have no responsibility. Mm-hmm. And I really couldn't. So but there were some things, you know, it's kind of that, the echoes in your head. I'm sure my grandmother's came out of being um, in the area of the Dust Bowl depression. And so one way to kind of focus on the present and what you, you know, again, positive fi- focus, focus on what you have, mm-hmm. not what you don't have, and then to be responsible um, to others, even as you exercise your freedom. I think those things were important to me growing up. My grandfather always said, remember who you are. That always felt a little on- ominous too, because I figured it meant if you do something, we're going to find out about it. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. um, But I think there is something about, you know, in every situation, remember your core values and, and where you come from. Yeah. And then there's always the, this too shall pass for those times you can't quite Mm-hmm. Um, wrap your head around what's happening. Mm-hmm. So those mm-hmm. come to mind. I love the fact that with your grandmothers, the, your first inclination was to challenge them. Or, oh, of course. Yeah. Um, the other one she loved was suck it up buttercup, which usually resulted around something you didn't want to do. <laughs> We've all, all heard that from time to time. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> she had a few more, but some of them weren't really um, for publication or or public yeah Yeah, got it (laughs) do you have any regrets (sighs) not too many I mean I think when you get to be I don't know for me it's been 45 plus so I'm 52 or 3 I can't remember but um I think you sort of see how everything kind of winds to where you are I, I if I had to say one it's probably leaving California if I could get back to California tomorrow I would I loved my time there and, and I feel very at home there. And I think that's part of why my daughter was born there and she considers herself a Californian, mm-hmm. which is I think why she was ready to pack her bags for college and head out West. And now she's not so sure, but I'm, I really, other than that, I really don't because even the mistakes have um, given me something I didn't have before. Mm-hmm. So let's switch gears and talk a little more work stuff. And I'd love to know what you're observing to be um, the biggest trend or thing happening in higher education right now. Or what do you see that's on the horizon in higher ed? Um, I have to say that I think what we're going to see rapidly expand or um, stick around is the acceptance of, of online blended virtual educational experiences. I think particularly in psychology, we fought that a long time because 
psychology, uh, clinical psychology and counseling psychology tend to focus on medical models. Like you have to be in person to learn surgery and you have to be in person to learn um, to be a, a therapist, a psychologist, uh, you know, use testing and evaluation. And I think that um, more other professions have been, or other disciplines have been more open. And I think now most universities are open. Some are more resistant still, I think, but I don't think um, it's gonna it's gonna change back much. Mm -hmm. I think that the way of the world of doing either emergency online or urgent online transition for K through 12 to um, providing more uh, online opportunities for students. And I think it's gonna be great for us because we're gonna have more peers and strength in numbers. And I think it's gonna be challenging for us because while we've been doing this for a very long time, um, some newcomers to the online environment have been able to take advantage of innovations and, and newer platforms and you know, are looking at it with fresher eyes. And so we're gonna to have to really challenge ourselves. Mm -hmm. I also think that um, the racial inequity and racial violence that we're seeing um, come to you know, a tipping point for, for most folks who don't experience it every day. Um, or regularly in their lives. So I want to be sure I acknowledge that a, a tipping point for some is certainly not true for all. But mm -hmm. I think as a, as a society and as a country, we're seeing things differently. And I hope that continues. And I think it's part of the university collective's responsibility to keep that moving forward. Mm -hmm. Great. Uh, will you tell us a little bit about some great contributions made by your team members? What are you seeing across your team? Oh, yeah. I mean, we can talk about you. Yeah, this was not meant to be a setup <laughs> anyway. Talk about Feel Annie. free to talk about your other team members. <laughs> well, I mean, certainly, I mean, really, Annie, let's talk about this NFM project that, that we sort of realized was coming and almost you know resisted a bit and then kind of came to terms with it but now it's blossomed into this really exciting um really opportunity opportunity for more folks to participate opportunity to flex our muscles and how we meet together virtually um outside of regular meetings or short meetings um i certainly miss being in person and, and really, really, really look forward to the time that we can can do all that again, because um, some of that informal, you know, spending time together is critical. But you guys, um, your entire team, along with the events team, has done a spectacular job of putting this together and, and having everybody feel like it's not a substitute. It's just, it's another way. And I, I think that's pretty exciting. We're all looking forward to it. Um, you know, amongst all the other amazing things you guys do. And, you know, the folks over in research and, and OIRA are really struggling with how do we support and incorporate institutional effectiveness into the university and what part do they play and getting everything into Tableau and offering lots of ways for, for folks to get real-time data and information, have it at their fingertips and use that for decision-making because that's such a cornerstone if we're not measuring what matters and monitoring the measurement, we don't know how we're doing. And, um, and that, that really is the core 
I think, function and mission for that group of folks. And they're also positive about it and they take change on and then they, they keep wanting to make it better. And, and I think that's really exciting. And of course, you know, um, Riley, the Richard W. Riley College of Education Leadership has gone through a lot of change. Um, we have one dean now instead of three and um, innovating. I mean, working really hard to create chunks of learning for teachers who are facing so many different challenges right now um, so that they can select how much they take at any time and not have to step away or we're realigning some of the connections between programs so it's easier for them to get what they want. And really focusing again on teachers and classrooms and students and um, then the leadership piece and the higher ed piece. So they're really doing a, a lot of innovation and realignment and focus. And I'm always so impressed with they never lose their focus of what's important. And I think that's um, really amazing. And it's an it's a awesome team under Kelly and then you know, got to brag a little bit about CMT and winning lots of awards in the Baldridge realm and getting the PEN, which is the Performance Excellence Network Award um, that we've missed getting in person, but we will have virtually given to us in September. Uh -huh. And, um, you know, launching a whole new IT suite. I mean, we're really going to push um, getting IT career opportunities open to more and more diverse individuals, um, women, Women in IT is a big focus, and um, we're going to partner some with uh, the Black Hat Conference this year. So that's big time for us. Mm -hmm. so everybody's just dedicated, and, and I'm really amazed, really collectively, um, how much we're pushing forward even as we're struggling and worried and scared and stressed and, um, you know, worried about the future. Yeah. Uh, given the pandemics we're facing and all the new kind of ways we're having to do things, but we're not losing hope and we're not losing motivation. So that's right on. Sounds like you have an awesome team. I do. <laughs> I do, Annie. Thank you for asking. <laughs> hey, I think we can wrap it up there. Thank okay. you so much, Marilyn. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure to chat with you. Hey, thanks so much. You are just over one hour and walking or running into our final interview. Enjoy. Thank you, Andrea, for spending time with us this morning and allowing us to get to know you a little bit better. Thank you, Annie. It's a pleasure to be with you. Yeah, great. So I am going to start with um, a question that I'm asking all of our interviewees, all of our vice provost and our provost. So on a scale of one to 10, tell us how happy are you and tell us why. Okay. Well, overall, generally, I'm a very happy person. And along with that happiness, I also exude a lot of enthusiasm. So on a scale of one to 10, I would say probably nine, 9.5. I tend to look at the glass being half full, no matter whether it is an opportunity or in a barrier. I look at those as challenges and opportunities to enhance, further develop, or eliminate. So in this way, that's my rationale that I am fairly always optimistic, half full, enthusiastic, ready to charge the mountain, and those that want to come with me, I welcome all the time. 
Love it. That's great. So where do you find inspiration? Actually, I find inspiration all around me, not only externally, but within me. First, from the faith that I've had since I've been small and growing through my entire life, the support I have from my husband being married many years, our children, as well as their, our grandchildren. But it's all also just sitting on a back porch, looking at the blue sky, marveling at the wonders of the world. Why is it blue and not pink? And we have green trees. And looking at it with a degree of serenity that puts one's mind that looks at challenges and opportunities as way to move forward in our life. It's looking at it with a positive attitude. At times my family calls, my, calls me Pollyanna. And that's because every situation I engage in, while I can see the positive and the negatives, I always tend to look at a solution that would arrive and be the best that it can be to benefit everyone, myself, others, the teams, the children, and even the little puppy dog next door who runs over for a friendly pat, who, who left the lease in the yard with its owner. I look at it as a positive. There must have been a reason that he needed to come over and have a pat on his head in order to fulfill his need. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so outside of work, what is the biggest challenge that you're facing? Well, I think my biggest challenge is that we've moved from North Carolina, which is a lovely green state that many people are moving into. We had, uh, we moved to North Carolina for our son who wanted family. We are not from North Carolina. We are from Northwest Pennsylvania below Erie in the Lake Erie area. So we moved to be a support. Well, last year, his job with his wife was transferred to Denver, Colorado. Well, Denver was not a place that we wished to, to move to because as I said, we're not from North Carolina, so we did not have family in the area. We have a married daughter who just happens to live in the Cleveland area called Avon. She politicked very hard <laughs> that we moved to be near her for the grandchildren that we would encounter with her, her children. So we moved to Cleveland area in Avon Lake. So most of the people that ask us, why did you move from North Carolina to Ohio with the blank looks and the perplex, you know, perplexed? So we're dealing with a change of environment being colder than we have been for the past year. Mm -hmm. And looking outside our house there, trying to grow grass where we can't go grow grass. It's being hot weather and it's not raining. So dealing with the move, a change of environment, a change of location, and having to grow things that were easier in North Carolina that are more difficult where we are now, those are the challenges that I see outside my normal work day. 
Mm -hmm. A true grass is greener situation. That is true. <laughs> <laughs> At oh. least you try to make it greener. <laughs> so do you have any rituals or superstitions, a morning ritual or an evening ritual? Well, ever since I was a teenager, uh, I really am not a breakfast person in that we uh, sit down and eat breakfast, you know, off to school you go, and I carry the pattern forward. So my typical breakfast is I get up, I go for a walk, I sit down, come back, get a cup of tea, and I even had tea when I was younger, and have ginger snap cookies. Now, I don't eat eggs in the morning. I don't eat bacon. I always eat gingerbread cookies. It's a ritual. Everyone, people will generally ask me, why, you're a nurse now? You still eat ginger snap cookies? And I said, well, maybe I was a little more fu futuristic than I realized in my life way back when. Research has shown that gingerbread, ginger snap cookies enable the endorphins of the brain to increase and help you deal with stress and move your energy level right at the beginning of the day. So I continue the ritual and I enjoy still love ginger snap cookies. And after I have my ginger snap, I'm off to meet the day and face whatever is waiting for me. Mm -hmm. Leave it to Dr. Lindell to have an evidence-based morning ritual. <laughs> <laughs> that is correct. <laughs> oh, that's good. Uh, I'm wondering if you have a favorite teacher. Could you tell us about a favorite teacher and why that person might stand out? Well, I just shared with you earlier that I was, I'm a Pollyanna more and look for the glass to be half full rather than half empty. My favorite teacher turns out to be someone that I chose not to follow their example because I believe that there is a better way to begin teaching a class and build the motivation, enthusiasm of the students. And a very brief example of the, of the teacher that is my favorite because I chose not to emulate is a young woman that walked into the class that was teaching the first evening. She wore a cape. She came, flounced in with her cape, threw it over her shoulder, and stood in front of the class and said, if there is a supreme, hello, I am Dr. So-and-so. If there's a supreme being, that individual will receive an A for the course. I, as the faculty, will receive the B, and you all, as students in my class, will receive the rest of the available grades. Oh, my. <laughs> that set a negative tone in all of us, including myself. And, of course, her it's teaching so methodology kind of followed suit, that it was my idea, so therefore the rest of the class, you know, you have leftover and not much interaction and integration and fostering discussion and creativity and innovative and just networking. So while we say my favorite teacher, 
that was my favorite one in order that I would not emulate the behavior and how you do not foster, you know, the interactions in a class. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. So you kind of learn from individuals. You, you also, for me, I tend to learn from individuals the positive as well as some of the behaviors that I believe not believe are not worthwhile emulate, emulating. Yes. So with that, I'll ask, do you have a motto or words that you live by? Yeah. Treat others as you would wish to be treated yourself. Mm. Enough said. That's Short good. but sweet, but mm -hmm. very powerful. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about uh, work stuff. I am wondering, uh, what are we doing as a university or what could we be doing to make faculty most successful? For me, I think one of the major areas is really begin to continue to further enhance and identify faculty as individuals. We're on teams. We're engaged in many, many activities, but I think it's important we recognize the individual strengths that each faculty has and identify with those strengths to assist them to become more successful and achieve greater heights that they may normally do without that recognition. I view as faculty teams and faculty as individuals, as individual stars. And I like to say we have a galaxy of stars here at Walden, and there's always room for one more faculty to become a star by the achievement of their strengths and successes and mm -hmm. just who they are in the realm of teaching students. Mm -hmm. Galaxy of stars. Thank you for that. Uh, how do you perceive the morale of the team around you right now? Well, if you're, you're looking at the COVID-19 situation, certainly the morale and the uncertainty of where we are going to be and the healthcare impact it's having, as well as the economic, the socialization, and all other factors that we're facing. It's it's, I think we're a normal faculty and that we're ranging from frustration to stress to a little bit of confusion. But the uniqueness about this faculty here at Walden is the faculty are rising above it. They are using that as a step stone to create alternative teaching learning methods for the students. They are being enthusiastic at times in order to work with students to see the advantage of facing all that we are facing now and the possible outcomes that it will generate for us now, but as well as for the future. So I see the morale is normal and that, but there's enthusiastic, there's still the creativity, there is the innovation, there is the willing to assist students to be successful as well as willingness to help each other to be successful 
always with the concern of doing the best they can to provide a good education for students and assist and work with their colleagues throughout all the uh, components that one goes through to educate students, but also assist their colleagues to grow, develop, and uh, really, I wanna call it, enjoy teaching and working with others and end the day with feeling good because they've at least done one or two good things for other people. Mm. Yeah. So would you talk more specifically about great contributions made by your team? Well, I think uh, that's an interesting question because throughout my career and here at Walden, there are many, many contributions done by all the stars that I talked about. So to identify one or two becomes very difficult. You know, it can range from the teams that really works, you know, years ago in identifying, and one of my faculty members had AIDS before it was even talked about in, you know, out in the open, it was more kind of held secretive as to how we help the individuals remain teaching, but secluded in areas that was that would be deemed as uh, contagious to others to maintain the in, an individual of an individual of that individual. I mean, to maintain the integrity of that individual. We have faculty, it's teams and individuals that assist and one that had brain cancer to maintain the ability to teach students who love to teach. Students love this faculty member. Faculty as a team help the individual to make the classes, take the individual into in a wheelchair to teach the courses, to mentor the students. But I think uh, it is really important that teams are successful because they really look to ensure the success of other and not only themselves. Mm -hmm. So there's been many, many situations to identify one. I mean, we'd be here all day <laughs> talking. Yeah, well, that would be all right with me. <laughs> so one more question. Uh -huh. How can Walden faculty help you or Walden in general? Well, that sounds like the easiest question, but it's really the hardest mm. in that for me, I think it's a cyclical relationship. You ask how I can, you know, faculty can help me and help and Walden in general. I think it's how can we help each other. As faculty grow and develop, I grow and develop. As I develop in my role, then I work with faculty to develop in their role, providing opportunities, facilitating their growth and development and their growth and development then facilitates my success. So it's cyclical. It's like a mentor-mentee relationship. A mentor 
encourages, facilitates, provides opportunity for the mentee to grow. The mentee grows, at which makes the mentor successful. But the key is you always work to ensure your mentee grows more than you are. Because with that growth, it helps you then become more recognized and grow, and grow within your own self. So it's a cyclical, I see it. It is constantly interacting with each other, with the faculty, the staff, leadership, work with me, I work with them, cyclical. We all grow at different stages, but we are growing and helping each other, which is why I see it makes Walden the great university that it is. Yes, that's awesome. Thank you, Andrea. Thanks for sharing your time and your words with us today. Okay, you're more than welcome. Thank you. I hope everyone is having a great walk this morning and you end up being rejuvenated and ready to face the day. Thank you for listening to all four interviews and walking or running with us today. 